You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Now, here is William Stewart on Today in the Word radio. Now, my beloved friends, the Bible declares that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now we're told why there is a Bible, that the man of God may be perfect, that is mature, truly furnished unto all good works. Perhaps you've wondered why we have a Bible. Well, there is the sum and substance of God's answer for that question. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that you, the child of God, may be mature, truly furnished unto all good works. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Now, if God says all of it is profitable for this, why is it that so many of us as God's children are so solicitous of just selecting a various, uh, a, a very few portions of the word of God and remaining in that area to receive the blessing from God that our hearts long to have? When God says all of it is given for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, I think one of the greatest ignored sections of the whole holy canon is that area known as the Minor Prophets. And I want to talk to you for the next little while about the great truth that is provided for us in the prophecy of Amos. It's, it's next to the uh, longest Minor Prophet in the Old Testament. It's the third in order. Hosea, Joel, Amos. And when you have opened your Bible to the book of Amos, I'm sure that you're going to discover a few things about the man. Because after all, God is very concerned and meticulous regarding the messenger that bears his message. The Bible declares those who would bear uh, the holy vessels, their hands must be clean. They must be pure of heart. And if you and I are going to be the messengers of God, God makes a requirement that his messenger be what he expects that messenger to be. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's exactly the price that an individual has to pay to be the messenger for the Lord. Careful study of the pro pro prophecy of Amos will reveal to you that Amos did not have academic training. He was not a seminarian. He declares that he, in chapter 7, verse 14, he was a herdman and he was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. He was not a prophet, nor was he a prophet's son. Thus, we understand that God is not just solicitous of those who are seminarians. But though he didn't have academic training, you can't go very far in the reading of the prophecy of Amos without discovering that he certainly prepared himself spiritually. And you and I, every one of us, regardless of what our background has been, if we're children of God, we can be the messenger of the Lord. He's ordained it to be that way because we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, for in every great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and earthen, some to honor and some to dishonor. If any man, that means you, 
That includes myself. If any man will purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use. Now, God just didn't single Amos. He didn't single Obadiah. He didn't single Hosea. He didn't single Joel out and say, these are the only ones I can use. These are the only ones who will be my messengers. He says, if any man will purge himself, he shall be a vessel of mine a vessel of honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use. Now, something that's very interesting about God's call that was extended to Amos was it revealed, is, is revealed to us in chapter 1, verse 1. And I would that you would just look at that verse for a moment. For it says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. Now, God couldn't call all of the herdmen of Tekoa because they were not vessels that were prepared for his using. But he could single out this one who was prepared. I'm a little fearful that many of us today are not called of God for the simple reason we want to conform ourselves to the world and to the flesh and to those who uh, seemingly are leaders in the world instead of saying in our hearts before God, Regardless of what others do, I want to prepare myself spiritually so that the Lord will be able to take me from among others. If others are not willing to respond, I am. I am not accountable for what others do, but I am accountable for preparing myself. And if it be so, God can take me out from among others. Now it costs just that to be a messenger of the Lord. Another thing of great importance about Amos, and that is, he was so concerned and involved with the Word of God. Of the 146 verses that constitute this wonderful prophecy, one-sixth of this book is devoted to declaring the validity of the Scriptures. Twenty-seven times Amos thunders out Thus saith the Lord. It's not my word. It's his. His expression in chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, is he answered Amaziah, who was the priest in Bethel, who sought to retard or to delay Amos in fulfilling the will of God and the ministry God had committed to his trust. He said, I I was not a prophet, neither a prophet's son, but I was an herdman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The Lord took me from following the flock. And he said unto me, Go prophesy unto Israel. Hear therefore the word of the Lord. I like that statement. Now when you open chapter 1, verse 1, you will discover that the Holy Spirit has made a very significant statement. The words of Amos. And if we bring verse 16 of chapter 7 and verse 1 of chapter 1 of the prophecy of Amos together, you will discover something that the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to convey to us, which I say again is of tremendous importance. Amos was the outstanding servant of God because he made the word of God his words. It's not enough to know the Bible. It isn't enough to read the Bible. It isn't enough to memorize the Bible. But before God, what pleases him is for us to make his word our words. When Amos opened his mouth, he was speaking the words of the Lord. And I believe more than what he had to say 
conveyed the message of God. I believe he was expressing the words of God not only by lips, but by life. Because the deportment that we read he manifested uh, as you pursue the reading of this wonderful prophecy. Now, um, God expects that of us. He expects our lives to be nothing more than his expression to mankind. Nothing short of that. Now we read in the Bible in Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, they express the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. That's their responsibility, to declare the glory of God. When you get over to Romans chapter 1 verse 20, we read something like this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The reason I emphasize the little expression, things that are made, if you knew the Greek language, you would know that this is the translation of one Greek word, which is poema, things that are made, from which we get that English word poem. So everything that God created constitutes his poem to the world. God expresses himself and his glory not just through the heavens, but through the things he has made, all of creation, so much so that creation leaves man inexcusable before God. Things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead they express, so that we are without excuse. Now would you believe it? God has progressed in the word of God to where he doesn't leave the expression of himself to the things that he has made. He doesn't leave the expression of his glory to the heavens. But when you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his, we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That word workmanship is the same Greek term that we have over in Romans 1, verse 20. Things that are made, which our, our translators uh, translated from the Greek word poema, poem. So if the things that are made are God's poem expression, expressing the wonder of himself, his Godhead, so that people are without excuse. He says, you're my expression. You are my poem. You are my workmanship. I have created you in Christ Jesus to that end. So no more than the heavens have a right to fail in declaring the glory of God. No more than nature itself, creation, has a right to fail in expressing the, uh, uh, the deity or the um, Godhead of, uh, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you and I have a right to excuse ourselves from expressing God through our lips and through our lives? This is the very reason why the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the believer's body. You will recall how Paul wrote in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirits, which are his. Now why did God want our bodies to become the temple of the Holy Spirit? What's profitable and beneficial about that? Well, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, you would read something like this. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by that one who indwells us, the dear Holy Spirit. 
So long as we don't grieve him and so long as we do not quench him, he ultimately will change the believer into the very likeness of the Lord Jesus. Now, who was the Lord Jesus? Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, says verse 14 of John 1, was made flesh and dwelt among us. What do we mean by Word? Words are a medium of expressing something, are a medium whereby things are expressed. If we should go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake, expressed himself in times past through the prophets, hath in the last days spoken unto us, expressed himself through the Son. Now, in other words, the Lord Jesus was the very expression of God himself. Very expression of God himself, indeed. You remember how trying to correct Philip on one occasion in John chapter 14, oh, about verse 7. He says, if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will satisfy us. And he said, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet hast thou not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? In sum and total, Jesus Christ was the expression of the Father. God expressed himself to us in the person of his dear Son. John 1.18 No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared, or he hath expressed him. Now the Lord Jesus said in John chapter uh, 19, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Well, when all has been considered, the complete truth of that expression, we will have to admit that as the Lord Jesus was directed from heaven to earth to be an expression of God to mankind, you and I, if we are sent likewise by the Lord Jesus, God expects no less of us the Holy Spirit lives in us to change us into the very image of Christ. So by lip and by life, we will be the very expression of the Lord Jesus. And it can be said of us in the record of eternity, as it is said of Amos in his little prophecy. The hear thou therefore the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit says, I want you to know that the words of Amos are the words of Jehovah. Now, if God were making a report of your life and mine, dear child of God, would he be able to say that God's word are, is your word or the words of the Lord are the, your words? Are they just part and parcel of you? Is your life so uh, uh, possessed with the word of God and saturated with the word of God that when people hear you talk and when people see you walk, they will think of what God has to say to them. Are you the very expression of God? This stands out to me in opening the book of Amos. The words of Amos from among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, uh, you know, Henry Ford, when he, put cars, when he put cars out on the road, he was following an example that God himself has established. Henry Ford said to himself, and he said to his company, if we want to promote Ford cars, let's put a sample out on the highway. He got that from God. God has put a sample of himself in this world in the person of Amos. 
And just as he did in the person of Amos, he expects the same of you if you are a child of God. You and I are to be an illustration of the will and the word and the work of God. And when people think of us, they should think of that. Now as for Amos, his um, borders of ministry were not confined to the area where the shepherds were in Tekoa. When the call of God came to him and the Lord took him from following the flock, God said, I want you to go prophesy to Israel. Now he wasn't living in Israel when he was living in Tekoa. There was a country between Judah and Israel and that was Samaria. Israel was the farthermost country to the north in the land of Palestine. And for him to leave Tekoa meant that he had to cross Judah and cross Samaria and to get in to Israel. My friend, if the call of God has come to you, and it has, he saved you to be an expression of himself, just like he sent the Lord Jesus, or he dispensed Amos on his ministry. You and I are not confined to the little area where we live. That locale may be very small. If you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And by virtue of that, the borders of our vision should take us clear to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Savior said in Acts 1.8, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Which leads me to conclude for my own sake, that I have, by virtue of being indwelt by this dear Holy Spirit, no right to be more interested in the salvation of the souls that circumvent my breakfast table than I am concerned in those Aborigines in Australia. The Holy Spirit overrides that boundary of selfishness of human love and causes us to love those whom we have never seen as though they were the ones that were sitting next to us so just as the command for and the responsibility was levied upon Amos to leave Tekoa, your ministry is going to be enlarged, go to Israel. So for the child of God, you cease living right where you are and you start living for the world. No wonder Wesley said, the world is my parish. You are responsible for it just like I am if you are a child of God. Now he was to present a message and that message was a message of judgment. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2 says, Every sin and disobedience must receive a just recompense of reward. That's for a believer as well as an unbeliever. God doesn't overlook sin in the life of his own any more than he overlooks sin in the life of the unregenerate. One fact that we must bear in mind which is of tremendous importance and that's this. The message that God dispensed to Amos to carry to Israel, which was a message of judgment, wasn't alone to Israel. It wasn't only to Judah. But hear me, it is for you and it is for me. How do I know? Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in, in samples and are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages are come. Whatever prophetic truth or whatever a pronouncement of judgment that Amos had to declare to fulfill the will of God to Israel and to Judah, that same pronouncement is for you and for me, for it is an ensample 
of truth for you and me who are living in the end of the age. Now I said his message was one of judgment. Look at verse 3, or rather verse 2, will you please, of chapter 1. Here is Amos declaring, The Lord will roar from Zion and will utter his voice from Jerusalem. The habitation of the shepherds shall mourn. The top of Carmel shall wither. What's this? Let's go back. He's declaring there is a judge and he will judge. Who is that one? The Lord. I wonder if you would look at how that word Lord is spelled. Like it's supposed to be spelled. But with what kind of letters? If you know anything about the names of God, you know that the word Lord with all capital letters is to convey his character of redemption. And every time it is used in the Old Testament, 7,600 times, every time you read that word, Lord, it is to remind us of the redemptive name of God, which is Jehovah. And incidentally, he who judges is the one who is the redeemer. Now, maybe that doesn't press your thoughts very much. And it doesn't stir you very deeply. But let me see if I can illustrate it. How that he who loved to the death to be our redeemer changes to be our judge. I recall a man whom I loved in the ministry. His name was Dr. Lee Rutland Scarborough and for so many years was president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary of Fort Worth, Texas. Whatever you know about that institution and whatever you think about it means little to me just now. But there was one man who was honest with God and oh, how God used him in evangelistic ministry over the Southland. I remember one illustration he was giving. On one occasion, he was in one of those southwestern Texas metropolises. And uh, he was getting ready to go to the platform. The auditorium was already filled. He had opened the door of the pastor's study so that he could go to the platform. And just as he walked to the door, up walked a woman. And she said, Dr. Scarborough, do you remember me? And he said, why, yes, I remember you. He said, come in, but I do not have much time to talk with you due to the fact I'm due to be on that platform now. So he seated her across from the desk where he, he was sitting. And he says, what's on your mind? She says, you remember that you were the one that tied the knot for my husband and myself. I want you to know that God gave us some dear children. But my husband has gone out into immorality. He is giving his affection and love to some other woman. And she began to sob. He tried to comfort her, but there was no comfort that was availing. And all of a sudden, she looked up through those tears. And she said, Dr. Scarborough, I've given him everything that I have. But if I had a butcher knife, I could cut his heart out of him tonight. And you know, my friend, I thought to myself, that's exactly how it's going to be when God judges. His love will be turned to wrath. For God, though he judges his own in love, he'll judge the unbeliever in wrath. Psalm 7, verse 11. God will judge the righteous, but he is angry with the wicked every day. And he who has been our redeemer and who has offered himself as the redeemer for mankind wherever man can be found, someday he will roar out of Zion. 
he'll be the judge. No wonder we read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that the people of that day will cry for the rocks and mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So when he says, the Lord is the judge, he's talking about the one who in loving grace became our redeemer. And that love is going to be changed to wrath when he judges the unsaved. The Lord will roar. Now this is how he's going to judge. He's going to roar. You see, those who will not hear his voice in mercy will have to hear a louder one in judgment. He'll roar. I think most of us know John 12, 32. But too many of us, we're just inclined to read it and let it pass and say, this is what it means. I, if I be lifted up, said the Lord Jesus, will draw all men unto me. Would you believe it? That the Greek term for that word draw is not just altogether what you and I think of as we think of draw. Now, when you really give to that word draw all the meaning that belongs to it, you will see that it's all right in the translation. But that word involves the expression drag. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will drag all men unto me. Some will not hear the voice of mercy and come voluntarily to him for salvation. If they don't, in judgment when he roars, he will drag them to himself. As the Lamb of God in redemption, he spoke in grace. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But as a lion, he will roar. He will speak loudly. You'll hear him then. People will not hear him in mercy. Some. No doubt the majority. But uh, if you don't hear him in mercy, you will hear him speak in judgment. For when he speaks in judgment, you're going to hear it. The Lord will roar out of Zion. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, John is presented to us as being in heaven. And he saw a majestic scene. He saw a throne, and the one who sat on that throne was God the Father. And he had in his right hand a book that was sealed with seven seals. And he heard one of the mighty angels of heaven saying, Who is worthy to take the book and to loose the seals thereof? And John said that no man in heaven, no man on earth, no man under the earth was worthy to take the book and to loose the seals thereof. And when there couldn't be found anyone in heaven, anyone on earth or under the earth who had the capability and the power and the authority to take that book out of the hand of God the Father and break the seals and open it, John said, I began to cry. And then one of the elders in heaven came to him and said, John, don't cry. There is one who is worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now as a lion, he roars in judgment. But as a lamb, he speaks in grace. And immediately, there in the midst of the throne, John saw one standing as a lamb that had been slain, reminding us that the day is coming, oh friend, and how Amos has declared it, that this one who was redeemer will be judge, and he will roar when he judges. Everybody will hear it when he speaks then. 
Now, out of Zion, of course, that refers to that wonderful place in Jerusalem that was so loved and honored. We call it Mount Zion. We think of the temple when we think of that. Think of the tabernacle. Do you know that the door of the tabernacle and the door of the temple was a picture of the grace of God? In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke out of the door of the tabernacle to Moses. And that's when he gave him those five wonderful offerings, all of them depicting the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in his perfect life, but in his perfect death, so that you and I might be redeemed. So when he said, the Lord will roar out of Zion, it's not only that he who was once a lamb and spoke in grace is going to judge, and in doing so, he'll cause everybody to hear, but the place from which once he spoke in grace will become the very place from which he will judge mankind. Roar out of Zion. For whom? Well, according to the message of Amos in this particular instance was for Israel, which reminds me that the judgments of God are not general. They are specific. He said, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now as God saves people individually and does not save them generally, nor collectively, nor corporately by means of uniting with the church or engaging in some ordinance of the church, God saves people individually. So he judges specifically. No one will be able to fill your shoes when you hear him roar in judgment toward you. Roar out of Zion to judge Israel. Now, it's thrilling to me to see the unique method that the Holy Spirit gave Amos to pursue in announcing the judgment of God to Israel. I say a unique method. For if you have read the first chapter of the book of Amos and the second chapter, you will have discovered this unique method. You see, he appeals to Israel to get their interest. Israel, I say. He appeals to them to get their interest and their concern by relating to them God's judgment upon their enemies. Now, most people, and this is the general run of the mill, most people will listen to what God has to say to others. Most people will hear what God is going to do to others. But they'll lend a deaf ear when it comes to God saying something to them. So this unique method that Amos uses, which of course is by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, gaining the interest and concern of Israel by calling them to observe the judgments that God is going to register upon their enemies. And if you'll begin at verse 3, you'll notice, he said, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions in Damascus, and for four, will I not turn away or remove the punishment that they're going to have? Now, Damascus was the capital city of Syria. Syria was to the northeast of Israel. Keep that in your thoughts. You go to verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, will I not turn away the punishment? Now, Gaza was the capital of Philistia which was to the southwest of Israel. Keep that in mind. Now we have the northeast 
and we have the southwest from the nation of Israel. When you go to verse uh, 11, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions, for Tyre will I not, and for four will I not remove or turn away the punishment thereof. Now Tyre was the capital of Phoenicia. That's to the northwest of Israel. So we have northeast of Israel, southwest of Israel, northwest of Israel. Well, we're ready for verse uh, 11. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four will I not turn away the punishment thereof. Where's Edom? That's to the east of Israel. And then you, when you go to uh, verse 13, for thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Ammon, and for four will I not turn away the punishment thereof. Where is Ammon? That's to the southeast of Israel. And then when you go to chapter 2, verse 1, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four will I not turn away the punishment thereof. They are located to the southeast of Israel. So when you take all of these upon whom God has pronounced judgment, the six traditional enemies of the people of Israel, Philistia, Phoenicia, Syria, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, when you consider them all, God has absolutely covered the boundaries, the periphery of Israel. All of their enemies are suffering under the judgment of God. And you know, Israel was listening. They listened to what Amos had to say, what God had to declare through Amos so far as judgment being meted out for the enemies of Israel. And every time they would say within themselves, Amen, the Moabites ought to get it, the Ammonites ought to get it, the Edomites ought to get it, the Philistia ought to get it, Phoenicia ought to get it, Syria ought to get it from God, they, they deserve it. The more they would condone what God did to Israel made it more difficult for them to try to escape the judgment of God upon themselves. Thus, when you get to chapter 2, you will read in about verse uh, 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four will I not turn away the punishment thereof. So in appealing to Israel to hear what God was going to do in judging their enemies, caused Israel to be caught in their own snare. You see, if God did it to those who did not know the law, how much more will he punish you who knew the law and yet you didn't keep it? Now, God has methods and he has principles of judgment, and they are here. But we're not going to concern ourselves with the way Amos presents them. I'm sure that there has arisen in your thoughts now. Well, I'm a child of grace. I've been redeemed by the grace of God, and there is no judgment for me whatsoever. I know how you feel about it. I can quote you 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, Genesis, our uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no judgment to them that are in Christ Jesus. Or to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through the Lord Jesus. That's all good and true. But God still judges his people. 
If he judges the sinner, if he would judge the enemies of Israel, he'll judge Israel. If he judges the sinner, he's going to judge the believer. But how does he judge the believer? Well, if you would turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, verses 5 and 6, the writer says, Have you forgotten the exhortation of the Lord which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Oh, there he is, judging his own. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For God does what? Loves every one of his children that he asks to chasten. Now, God deals with his children. In judging them, he judges them in love. And verse 11, now no chastening for the present. No judgment from the hand of God for the child of God seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. O child of God, here and now, God is going to judge you for that disobedience in your life. It must receive a just recompense of reward. Now we make a lot of grace. And there never has been a greater proponent of grace, one who admired the gospel of grace more than I do, and who preaches it. But it's high time that we come back and review the holiness of God, which demands on the part of the child of God purity of conduct and absolute obedience to the will and to the word of God. And if it isn't there, he's going to chasten. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now it's wonderful to know that he is responsible for you and me having faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. This is his word. He's responsible for you having something you can place your faith in. You can take him at his word. Now, he's the author of our faith, but he likewise is the finisher. And you know, involved in the finisher's responsibility is more than just term or word. Here is a piece of furniture. There was a time when it was out there in the forest. It was a part of a tree. But then that saw had to be used on it. Then it had to be cut into pieces. Then it had to be planed. And then it was, came to the finishing process, the sandpapering. And oh, my friend, that's where the chastening of the Lord comes in for the child of God. If he'll judge our enemies, he's going to judge us. He's in the business of finishing us off so that we can make good pieces of furniture in the Father's house, so to speak. He's going to finish us off right. I shall never forget in conducting an evangelistic meeting in a city in the Southwest. We were having crowds to where it was necessary to have two audiences a night. And in the second audience, I would let the people do the preaching. I stood on the communion table and just let each one of them give a word of testimony for about 45 minutes, then give another invitation and let the people go home. And I remember looking out into that audience and they had opera chairs just like this. There was a woman sitting there and she seemed to be poured into that opera chair because she was so large. I knew that woman and her face was just as big as the moon and when she smiled, she just smiled all over. But this time she wasn't smiling. 
I watched her as she grabbed the arms of that opera chair and began to uh, uh, try to get herself up out of it. And finally she did and she stood to her feet. And the tears were really running. They were dropping from her chin. She says, men and women, I want to tell you something, an experience I had with the Lord today. Most of you know that my husband left me. And most of you know that my children have gone in the way of my husband, followed the flesh. She said, I have to take in washing and ironing for a livelihood. I was standing at the ironing board today. As I was ironing, I was thinking how lonely I am in the world. Why was it that my husband, whom I gave everything to, would go off with another woman in the ways of the flesh? And I cried to God, and oh God, my children, why would they follow their father when they had a praying mother? Lord, what's it all about? And she said, all of a sudden, it's as though someone said something to me. Angie, what are you doing? She said, I just looked up and I said, Lord, I'm ironing. And this voice said, Angie, how do you get wrinkles out of that cloth? Well, I use a hot iron. That's right, Angie. And that's what I must do to you to take the wrinkles out of your life. And she said, now, the joy of the Lord has replaced that concern and confusion and discontent within. Oh yes, no chastening seemeth to be joyous right now. When God judges, he has a purpose in judging his children and he does it in love. He wants to finish us off as finished pro uh, pro uh, projects. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all, children of God, appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive of the things done in our body according to that we have done, whether it be good or evil. So he's going to judge you, believer. And if you haven't been judged of the Lord for disobedience, I have news for you. The woodshed with God in it is waiting just around the corner. Thank God when he takes you there, he'll deal with you in love. He has an end in view for you, which is for your good and for his glory. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, when he hath tested me, when he has chastened me, when he hath judged me, I shall come forth, not the worse, but the better, as go, Job 23.10. But what about the judgment for the unsaved? He has a method and a principle that he's going to pursue for that. Now, just as God judged Israel, their Redeemer, don't forget that, so one of these days, the Lord Jesus is going to be judge of the world. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. If the Father hath given all judgment unto the Son, who is it that sits on that throne? None other than the Lord Jesus. Do you know as he sits there, he has principles of judgment? If you should go into a court, do you know they have statutes? A judge has to go by certain statutes. He just can't deliver a decree that is, um, well, appealing to him and what he thinks ought to be meted out as a punishment for that individual. He has to operate his court on the basis of law that has been set down in a place much higher than his position. And that's the legislature, you see, or the Congress of the United States. He has to go by principles, statutes of governments, of judgment, we call them. So the Lord Jesus has those. When he sits on that throne, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 reveals to us the principles whereby he's going to judge mankind. Would you like to just itemize them quickly? Let me give them to you. 
Therefore, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. Look at verse 2. For we know that the judgments of God are according to truth. When the Lord Jesus starts judging mankind, as he judged Israel, and as he judged Judah, he's going to do it according to truth. There isn't anything that's coming into the record but bare naked truth when he judges. Now, if you would go to verse 5, we read, After thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the uh, day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What's that? Accumulated judgment. You're accumulating, storing up, treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Every day you live without Christ, young man. Every day you live without Christ, young lady. Every day you live without Christ, man or woman. You are accumulating guilt against yourself. And that's the way whereby he's going to judge you when he sits on that throne. Treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. And he's going to, going to judge, don't forget, according to the truth. Now when you go to verse 6, he's going to judge according to your deeds. Oh, yes. And I saw the books open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. See it? So, he's going to judge according to your deeds. He'll bring them all out before you. When you get on to verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of, Je of Romans, you'll discover another one. We know that when he judges, it will be without respect to persons. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before him. So it's without respect to persons. When you get to verses 12 and 13, we read about those who have sinned without law shall also perish without law. Those that have sinned under the law shall be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law that are justified before God, but the doers of the law. What's that principle of judgment? It's not according to knowledge, but it's according to performance he's going to judge the unsaved in that day. You knew to do good and you did it not. And he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. So he's going to judge according to performance and not just what you knew. When you get out of verse 16, he's going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. Just imagine this one who sat on the, sits on that throne going to unveil all the secrets of the unsaved person's life. Now let's go to the last one. Beginning at verse 17 and going through verse 29 of Romans 2. And this is the last. You'll discover he brings the Jew before him. And he says, oh, so you're a Jew. And you boast us of the law. You rest in it. And you boast of God. When you get on to verses 28 and 29, Paul says by the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, he is a Jew which is not one outwardly, which is by circumcision, but one which is of the spirit, that is of the heart, not before men, but before God. In other words, he is declaring that the last principle whereby he's going to judge men is according to reality and not religious profession. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Protestant or whether you're a Catholic, he's not going to judge you according to your religious profession, but the reality of your heart. Amen. Now, these are the methods. These are the principles whereby God's going to judge. It's the wisest man that ever lived apart from Jesus Christ who wrote, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, 
but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Tell me, are you going to try to cover up before God? In his power of judgment, he will expose even the secrets of your life, and he'll judge you accordingly. I would encourage you with all of my heart. Remember, saint and sinner alike, we're going to have to be judged of God for every sin and disobedience. In love, thankfully, he'll deal with his own and chasten them accordingly, here and now, if not at the judgment seat of Christ, the great Bema. But for the unsaved, you will be judged in wrath. It'll be measured out to you in such a way that he who once came to speak to you in grace will roar in judgment. This is the moment for which perhaps God has let you live. Would that you not just brush it aside as though it was meaningless, but come and give your heart and life to Christ, shall we pray? Our Father and our God, thank you for helping us. Just look at some truths in thy precious word expressed by Amos himself. Oh, the judgments of God that need to be reconsidered by saint and sinner alike. Lord God, if there is a saint here that's living loose and fast with their responsibilities and privileges before God, may they remember that the one who loved them and gave himself for them is going to bring them to ta. That disobedience is going to receive a recompense of reward. The chastening won't seem to be good. The finishing won't seem to be joyful. But after will it would yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Oh God, for that one who is without Christ, may they know that the judgment of God is lingering only because he's trying to woo them in mercy to himself. This may be the moment for which they were born. May they take advantage of it and come to Christ, I pray, in the Savior's dear name. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.